0: awesome to welcome old dominion head coach Delisha milton jones to the basketball podcast Delisha milton jones is in 2022 women's basketball hall of fame inductee and a two-time olympic gold medalist she had a decorated professional career in the wnba and overseas she was a two-time wnba champion and a three-time wnba all-star in 2020 she became the head coach of the old dominion monarchs after previously being an assistant coach at syracuse and a head coach and assistant coach at Pepperdine. In her three seasons at Old Dominion, Milton Jones has improved the overall record of the team posting back-to-back 21 seasons the past two years. She has a 91-65 overall head coaching record. As head coach at Pepperdine, Milton Jones led the program to unprecedented success, including the first 10 win seasons since 2012 and the best record since 2012 when she led the team to 22 wins in her second season. Coach Milton Jones, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It'd be fun to talk to you. I mean, so many experiences at so many levels in so many places, and uh, I, I want to start with something. Basically, how do you draw from your playing experience to help shape your coaching philosophy and connect with your players?
1: I think the most valuable asset that I have from my playing time that I bring into my coaching realm is the intent ability to relate. There is nothing that my players are going through, will go through, or have gone through that I have not experienced in some shape or form. And having that in my bag of experiences allows me to tap into the individual um, in a deeper way than many other coaches won't have the ability to. Um, it's a beautiful thing that I'm a female, I'm a minority, and I play basketball, played basketball on every level of possible. I've, I've been at the grassroots and I've been at the pinnacle. So I can relate to them in a heavy way.
0: That's such a great connection for sure to be able to have. <laughs> and then with that, I know part of your philosophy is to keep it real. Can you explain yeah. that to us?
1: <laughs> yeah, sometimes keeping it real can go wrong. And the reason why keeping it real goes wrong, I think Dave Chappelle was the one that had a skit uh, on his Chappelle show about when keeping it real goes wrong. You go wrong in keeping it real when you don't have the proper relationships built prior. Uh, Because there's a lot of times in this game of basketball, it's a business for us. As coaches, it's a business and we're trying to get the players to understand that. So in order for you to be able to keep it real without their feelings interceding, And superseding what you're trying to teach or give them in that moment, you have to have some level of rapport with them where they understand that you are a human being that recognizes the flaws within the human being that they're becoming on and off the court. And you have to give them the truth in order for them to truly understand where they should be in this moment in their lives, how they respond to it, how they grow from it. And I still love you. I still care for you but you need to hear the naked truth in this moment and it may hurt.
0: It always may hurt but it's uh, obviously what they crave as well but I'm curious like obviously success as a coach at Pepperdine and now at old Dominion but I'm curious do your players maybe feel a little extra pl- pressure playing for someone as established as you in your professional career and collegiate career?
1: Yeah, we we have those candid conversations. I want to know. I am not going to be a coach that's oblivious to the fact that um, no matter how much I may want to walk around in life thinking that I'm I'm just a regular a normal coach, just like any other coach, my players know they've seen me in movies, they've seen me on television, their parents have been fans of me. Um, they may have a jersey in their house with my name on it. I have to leave space for that perception to be there, for them to see me as Delisha Milton Jones, the WNBA player, the Olympian, rather than Delicia Milton Jones from Riceboro, Georgia, who loves to fish. <laughs> so we have those conversations, and I love I love it when they're open about it, and they let me know, like, you know, I was nervous when you when you came to watch me play, or I was nervous the first month that I got on campus, and I would say, why? And I'm like, well, you know, I I didn't want to mess up because you you coach, you're like the bomb, <laughs> and <I'm, laughs> and I would have to tell them, you gotta you you gotta get that out. We have to understand that I'm not trying to make you me. I'm just trying to bring out the best, enhance everything beautiful about you. I'm just trying to enhance that. And now you can present yourself to the world as the best version of you. Delisha Milton-Jones, she is old, retired, knees are bad, back is hurting. That lady can't do nothing for you in terms of the player. But this woman can help get you where you're trying to go. So when we break the conversation down like that, I believe that it breaks down barriers that could be an invisible force field that can stop the player-coach relationship, which can hinder the player's growth.
0: That is such a beautiful way of explaining it. That's, that's just great. Uh, normalize yeah. it and move on type yeah. of thing. Yeah, and that's that's super. So I'm wondering from your perspective as a player then becoming a coach. What was one thing or maybe a few things that you didn't like from a player's perspective, but now as a coach, maybe you appreciate a little bit more?
1: I did not like it when coaches um, would just haul off and express themselves. I understood then, but more so now, that coaches are human. And they're in the moment, they're competitive, they're intense too. But I didn't like it then because I didn't understand that they needed that space to express themselves, but it would have been better if the coach could explain themselves. If I had better relationships with my coach on and off the court, then when it was time for them to turn up in a moment on the court, it wouldn't hit as hard. I wouldn't be as sensitive to what they were trying to get across. Even though I'm trying to do my best to please you, I'm failing at it. You're expressing yourself in a demonstrative way. I'm hurt that I'm hurting you. I'm hurt that I'm messing up and I'm not being my best. So now we're just in this cluster of emotions from both ends. How do we navigate through that? Now that I am a coach and I understand how to handle that, that's why I put a tremendous value on spending time with my players, getting to know them as a person, them getting to know me too. I want them to see me cry. I want them to see me in my frustrated moments. So they can, I allow them to be my friend too. I allow them to talk me up, to call me up, to pull me up by my bootstraps and say, coach, you got it. Or coach, I'm proud of you. Uh, So now when we can share that space with one another in that way, when we're in a game, we can have a conversation. They can give a rebuttal and it won't become explosive. you know. It's, it's two people with mutual respect for one another in a hot moment that we can communicate even through that.
0: That's a shared experience, isn't it? And uh, that comes through all those little mini moments you referred to. So connecting with your players, spending time with them, obviously outside of the court, but uh, talk to us a little bit about on the court. What type of things are you doing in practice to be able to forge those relationships?
1: Well, I'm the type of coach, you know, we all know that you have to put your players in situations that are uncomfortable, but it's how you respond as well as a coach. It's not just important for how your players respond, but it's also how I respond because it's been said a thousand times before, you teach people how to treat you. So players are going to have their triggers. That, allowed it, that, that allows itself to manifest itself in a negative way when they're in tough moments. So now as a coach, I have a decision to make. Am I going to apply grace or am I going to apply force? I try to let it be a decision for my players. You can do things by force or choice. If it's by choice, that means you're actively involved in this process with me. When I put you in something uncomfortable, you have to make better decisions in terms of how you respond. If your response is not conducive for the moment and the environment or where we're trying to go, then I have to apply some type of force. Force is unpleasant. Force, you, it, it can come with many different strengths to it. But if you do it by choice, that means you're a willing participant. By force, that means I have to do the squeezing and the poking and the prodding That can become abrasive, that can take longer for you to grow, and it can be more uncomfortable than if you just made the choice yourself in your mind to say, let me respond better. Because I can give you whatever stimuli you need, it's just that you need to choose wisely.
0: So I read a few times in different articles in preparing for this how you nailed the interview. And I can tell in the first 10 minutes, Coach, why you nailed the interview. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's just, it's beautiful to hear you talk and be able to express things very matter-of-factly, very directly, and very specifically, and that's what I think generally all players crave nowadays.
1: They do. You know, players nowadays, they they're this is the social media, the digital age of a player, so their minds work the same way that they live. If they're doing everything in 140 characters or less, or a minute-long or two-minute-long video, then the way that I have to give information, it has to be to the point. I don't have time to skip through the lilies, (laughs) frolic through the lilies and try to figure out creative ways to say it. I just need to say it. You need to receive it. And then we can move on. (laughs)
0: Love it. Love it. It's absolutely great (laughs) stuff. And, uh, you know, we're going to come back to some of the culture pieces, I'm sure, and to to discussing some more of your program. But uh, I wanted to use your expertise because I know you've used it as a player, as a coach. And I, I know from talking to some of your staff that this is valuable to your program is drop coverage. So maybe first give us some of the principles of your drop coverage.
1: Okay, so defensively, um, obviously, when we are putting stuff in, we get them to understand that when whether you are guarding the ball or you are off ball, your your job is critically important. No one can take a playoff when we're on the defensive end. Everyone has to be locked and loaded. So now when, when you are in the action with the ball, and it's a pick involved, then there has to be a high level of communication uh, early rather than late. That's number one. Now, number two, when we're in the coverage, it's it's for my bigs to be able to um, not just sit back and allow guards to kind of have choices. We want to dictate. So if you're going to dictate, then that means you need to be able to funnel people in areas, but then to take the shots that you want them to take. So in some drop coverages, you will see the big sitting back far. They have dropped deeply. Now the guard doesn't have help. So if she's forcing a player over the screen, then that means she's at a disadvantage, especially if the screen is used properly and the guard comes off low, tight, shoulder to shoulder with her teammate. There's no way for your guard to be able to get through without fouling. So she's going to be behind the play a little bit. So if she's behind the play and your post player is dropped all the way back, that guard, if she has mid-range game, she can pull up and not even be contested. We don't want that environment. So we bring our bigs up into the party. They are in the play. And what they're doing is they're they're showing they're going to be low and wide. I don't want them big. I want them low and wide because now if the guard does pull up, we're there. With our limb to be able to contest, great. But if she wants to get bold and try to put the ball on the floor to attack, she's going to have to go around us rather than uh, through us or by us. That should buy her teammate time to be able to get back in front or get on that hip to make the offensive player feel some type of a pressure to be able to hesitate. If she hesitates, if she bounces back, That gives your teammate time to get back in front. That's all I want my bigs to be able to do is buy time for their teammates to get back in front. You have the big and our drop coverage that is up. You have someone sitting in the gap to be able to stunt to make that player really have to hesitate and think twice about trying to explore deeper into the paint. Um, And then we, we have a lot of other things going on around us too. So everyone's actively involved. Moving as the ball is moving in accordance to where your man is. is something we work on heavily every single day so that they can own that. And now when they're in live game situations, I can just give key words here and there. And it triggers a certain response and movement from everyone to where they know I know what my job is. And now I can communicate with this one on the backside and we can almost zone this thing up or we can X this thing out depending upon who's around me. I have to be fully aware of that is this a big back here with me then there's a certain job that we can do and what type of big is it is it a, is it my 5 that's not as mobile as my 4 then if I'm the guard I need to take more responsibility in being the one to to do the movement you know uh yeah use maximum movements for me if it's a four player that's athletic and can get out there and um stun at a guard or switch out then I can stay on this shooter let her go and then we'll let them find their weakest shooter and pass it to that person. So one coverage, but everyone's involved in it, all to get them to take the shot that we want them to have.
0: So traditional drop coverage, uh, trying to force uh, mid-range, obviously, instead of uh, threes and at the rim. Uh, Same principles here, but you're trying to be a little bit more aggressive at dictating where the ball goes and not giving up that easy, open, say, mid-range jump shot, right?
1: No one should have the ability to shoot uncontested shots. And the way that a lot of teams are playing, everyone's either shooting threes or they're getting to the rack. Uh, We do the analytics report on every team, and we show our players visually through graphs or through what Synergy presents. Uh, We break down analytics and put the numbers into words so that it's in layman's term. And if they're reading on their own time, then they can have an understanding. Or when we're breaking it down too, and we put presented in a simplified colorful way uh, for them to really get it. They get it through what they're saying. They get it through what they're seeing. Then they, then they get it through what picture they're painting in their mind uh, without anyone giving them any information. They know. So now with all of that, they understand that, okay, if this team is a great three-point shooting team, and we want to run them off the three-point line, then I understand the importance of that big not being back. So you'll hear my players getting on each other in the game. You're supposed to be up. You got to be up. You got to be in the hole. Um, Because they know we want them to take contested jumpers. We're going to give you one, but it's going to be the one that you're not able to explore as much as you would like because that's not your go-to we took away your first go-to, which was the three. Your second go-to is to get to the rack. But if every hole is clogged up and you got hands and feet and legs and bodies in your um, driving lanes, only thing left to do is to shoot a shot that you probably don't practice that much. Or if you do, it's not a habit of yours. Now you're playing in our hands.
0: So the big that's covering in drop coverage, then what are you telling them in terms of stance? You talked about getting low and not being big, but mm-hmm. is one of the goals to not get beat uh, to the d- direction of the dribble to be able to Correct. force the ball back? Is that the idea?
1: Correct. Yep. We want to, if you're if you're on the left wing and you're trying to attack, right, from the 45 and you're trying to attack, usually the attack lane is trying to get to beat someone to a spot and you want to beat them to that elbow spot. Because that's usually what's open in a drop coverage because the big is sitting back so far. Well, we want to funnel you to that spot, but we want to funnel you. We want to close up the space that you have. So now you got to function in a small area. If you choose to pass, you got bigs that are low and wide showing you their palms. So we can be active with deflections, get any bounce passes, get anything over the top. So their stance should have them called up and ready to go like a spring you know, you, you pull that thing back and then boom, a pass goes in the air. We should be able to react to get a piece of something. Deflections lead to steals. Now we can start our offense. For the guard, her job is to not allow there to be any space. So you can't get hit by the screen. I, I don't like it when I see my guards getting hit. That means they're not playing defense in my eyes. So we should use our quickness and our, our nimbleness to be able to um use our mechanics with the techniques that we teach them turn your feet chase over it the screener is non-existent as soon as you pass her you should be sprinting to either get to that hip or get back in front of your man while you're doing that the big is being low and wide not tall because if you see a big coming out tall the guard is going to think aggressive and go penetrate but if she sees us low and wide She's going to think, my drive isn't there, so let me look for my shot. And now, by the time you're getting into your shot, guess who's coming back? The guard. So now, as you're picking up the go in the shot, you see guard. Now you're thinking, pass. Boom. We got the ball out of a great scorer's hands. Now we reload for the next person. And if the next person is someone that doesn't shoot the three, then we have a coverage ready for her because we should already be communicating what's going on around us to be prepared for whatever is next if a pick is coming.
0: So what are the cues that you give for recovery? You talked about the recovery happening in that way, either on the hip or getting back in front. So is that the cue that gives the big the idea that they can recover to their own check?
1: Yep. So there's a heavy amount of communication. The big should be calling the screen number one. That signifies for our guards to not have to look to see what's going on, but you use your sense of hearing. Trust that your teammate's going to give you information early and accurate. I don't like a lot of filler words. Hey, watch it. Pick coming. Right. You said 10 words that didn't need to be expressed. (laughs) You just need to say, Jordan, pick right. Jordan knows. Boom. Turn my feet. Without a shadow of a doubt, she can use her arms to feel because our palms should be out anyway, so she could feel anything coming in her area. Boom, turn my feet, because normally picks are set to attack the middle. And once we understand their play, we know know if they're setting a step-up screen, we'll know, we'll be geared up for that. But nine times out of 10, it's towards the middle. So she knows I'm guarding, boom, turn my feet because I heard my big, and the big isn't going to call it until they are there. So the big can't have separation from her man. The guard should be guarding and not have separation from hers too. So my guard has turned her feet. The big is in the hole. The man comes off of the screen. Now it's the guard's turn to communicate. If she sees that her man is attacking downhill, she knows that the big is probably going to commit to that and stay because we teach the most important thing is the ball. Stop the ball. Don't worry about your man because that's your teammate's help back there. So if the big is called up and she's defending, the guard will just call the switch. Boom, everyone's guarded. Everyone's between their man and the ball. Now they are bound to have to take a contested shot. If the guard comes off and the guard sees that her man kind of hizzied or she bounced back or pulled back, then the guard can say, I got it. And then she goes, and the big rotates back to her man and while the big is rotating back to her man if there's a strong side corner fill then that person would be jamming the roller to give the big time to get back and if the guard played the pick right when she came off by turning her feet and forcing her then the guard that came off she wouldn't be able to see the kickback because we're on that side of her body takes away that line of vision so the only thing that she should have is a kick out to the opposite wing or to a high post that's flashing. Now we have reset our defense and we're good.
0: You're not helping from ball side. You're trying to force the weak side pass if they're going to make a pass. And I'm glad you covered that because it's going to ask you about who covers the role because in traditional drop coverage, the big traditionally stays more at the level of the role. Whereas mm-hmm. you're pressing up a lot more. So you're getting help from that weak side. What yes. about in a pick and pop situation, coach?
1: Yep. So in a pick and pop, it can be the same thing. If it's, I love bigs that um, are multidimensional. So if I have a five player that can move her feet pretty well and it's a pick and pop and we know they're looking for that, then we'll just switch that. And now if they switch it. And let's say our, um, so there's so many things that we could do. It depends on what type of team you have. So I've been I've been able to do this. If there's a if there's a, a strong side corner, strong side wing has the ball. Big is coming up to set the pick. Let's say um, the pick is set. The big pops. Well, whoever's in strong side corner, she would split two. She would open up into the hole, split two, so that as that person is coming off of the pick, there's not a quick kickback to her man because she can recover. So she splits two sits in the hole. Now when the kickback goes to the big that's popping, she can go stun at it. And if the big can get back in time, the big will take it and she will bounce back in the hole to her man. Or if it's someone that has a quick release, then that's an automatic X out. That strong side corner sprints to the shooter where the pass is going. Big, rolls back out to the hole to the person in the corner so we can get rather creative with what we do if there's not a corner field and that pick is happening that's probably the most difficult one to have to defend um, if the guard and the big are prolific scorers then nine times out of ten we're just going to switch it to keep people in front but them to have to take a contested shot I would prefer it to have to go back to the big. I want that pass back because if we take her shot away, now a big is trying to beat a guard off the dribble. Nine times out of 10, that works in our favor because I, we teach our guards to be able to get up under people, especially if it's a big, Run her, make her uncomfortable to have to put the ball on the floor. Now we can pick her apart. Now she's not a prolific decision maker. Something bad is about to happen.
0: emergency situations it becomes a switch
1: yep emergency situation or scripted or if we're at a certain point in the shot clock they automatically know if it's uh 10 seconds or less we're in a hot now everybody's on high alert we're in a hot we're in a hot that means we're switching everywhere any any on-ball screen action we're switching that thing
0: yeah, I'm wondering, was this your preferred style as a player, to be able to defend ball screen or where did this influence come from in terms of this version of drop?
1: Um, I would say Michael Cooper. Michael mm. Cooper played, you know, he was he was known for his defense and he played with the Lakers for many years and he was that that player that was kind of a hybrid. They would throw him on any player and he'd be all over the court guarding everyone. Um, he allowed us to have certain freedoms and to utilize my athleticism and my intellect. Uh, you know, when I'm playing with Lisa Leslie, Candace Parker, they're known for their offense. Lisa won Defensive Player of the Year Awards, you know, because she would get the weak side blocks, average about two a game. So yeah, you, you, you did it. She, I'm not gonna take away from what Lisa did defensively. Um, but what was beautiful about her game was how much she communicated. So she didn't have to be athletic and everywhere and um, high wired and high intensity. If you talk about it, she showed her intelligence and her athleticism in a different way. Me, I could talk it, I could see it, but I could also do it and be everywhere. So Coop, Coop Michael Cooper would allow me to kind of, you know, have free range to be able to be like, Lisa, drop, I'm out, or Lisa, stay. And, you know, and, and I would switch out and do some things. And so that, that kind of honed my skills. And now as a coach, I'm able to look at situations and understand, okay, this coach likes to run this type of play for this person. I could blow that whole thing up if I just do this scheme. And now we're good.
0: This is great. And, and look, and all young coaches listening, Google Michael Cooper if you don't know exactly. Cause,
1: uh, yeah, <laughs> That's
0: one of the original 3 uh, and D's, really, before 3 and D existed. He was That's tremendous. Right. Um, coach, uh, what are the most common mistakes uh, players make when executing drop coverage? What are the fix-it moments that you have to do the most?
1: Well, it depends on how aggressive the coach wants the drop coverage to be. Number one, but, let's talk um, about
0: your defense, maybe so, in terms of yours.
1: Okay. So with mine, the the most common mistake would be um, how you're communicating. How soon are you communicating? What are you communicating? You have to give the right information. I don't want hey, hey watch it pick no come have a seat because you sound like the fans (laughs) you know i i need for you to be in the moment the same way that we want players to be one step ahead offensively because they're reading the defenses you have to be have that same mentality when you're on defense be a play ahead we already have scouted this opponent we've given you the play we've broken it down we showed you what they're looking for you understand the tendencies of everybody on the floor. So when they have the ball and when they don't, you already know what they're thinking. So now when you hear the play, you understand what's their goal. So now you can be a play ahead to take those things away. In order to do that, you have to be able to be in the moment to communicate. Communicate what you see. And now when I talk, that gives her information without her having to do it herself by turning and looking. Because I hate it when guards are guarding the ball. And they turn and have to look. That means your teammates aren't talking or you don't trust. Now we got some things to work on as a team. But when they're locked in and they're doing their job, I can help her do her job even better by giving her the information she needs to be successful. So as a big, you're going to take pride in how you communicate. And that will, limit, that will eliminate mistakes that we can make in this on-ball screen action we have. Then as a guard, do what you hear. If I drop coverage is black, when you hear black, you already know. Turn my feet, get on a hip, chase her off, sprint in front. That's it. So do what you hear. Bigs communicate. Guards do what you hear. Now everybody does their job. Help side, strong side. Everybody's in their positions. We're good.
0: Hey, Coach. A brief time out from the podcast to bring you the Analytics Minute, sponsored by Hoopsalytics. Do you know which players should be taking what kind of shots? An analytics system like Hoopsalytics can help your team make better shot selection decisions. You can track every kind of shot each player takes, where the shots come from, rate the shot quality, track if the shot was contested, and see the results. For example, see which players are taking mid-range floaters and measure the results versus catch-and-shoot jumpers. As an added bonus, Hoopsalytics shot charts are fully interactive. So you can filter by shot distance, shot type, or even specific areas of the floor. Then watch video clips of all those shots or see the points per shot. Hoopsalytics brings the most powerful analytics to teams of all levels. It's easy to use and affordable. It's like AI for basketball coaches. Visit hoopsalytics.com ball today. That's H-O-O-P-S-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S dot ball today to learn more and start analyzing your game for free. I love that phrasing, do what you hear. And, it, and it's a great example of saying, like, even if it's not the right thing, what you hear, it becomes the right thing because everyone's on board to be able to do it. Um, and I can really see, Coach, how the beginning of this whole podcast, when we talked about how you communicate, how you build relationships, how that connects to how you coach them technically and tactically too. And I think yeah. that's awesome. I see the consistency in terms of how you approach it. And that's that's really cool. And That must make it easy for your players to be able to learn.
1: It does. And I mean, and I try to treat them how I would want someone to treat me. I, my best coaches were the ones that were great communicators that um, understood their vision. They understood how to explain it and they could get that information to me so I could listen well and I can do. If you keep it that clean, then there's no room for crap. There's no room for junk. Uh, I understand the plan, but if the coach is kind of flighty and they're all over the place or you're a head coach and you just sit back and you let someone else run it. And then now you have all these different voices in the game. The main voice they're going to hear in the game is yours, but your coach put all this stuff in, like it it just gets crazy. So everyone has to be on board giving the same type of information. Even if you have a, if even if you have delegated those responsibilities to a coach on your staff, everyone needs to speak the same language so that when we're on the bench, we're all given the same information, expecting the same results, and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it.
0: I think you'll appreciate this story because I worked with a college program once, and I think a lot of things that I do sometimes with college programs is removing stuff instead of adding stuff. They had a list of like 15 non-negotiables on defense, for example, and I asked them, what's your one that matters the most? And you already referenced this, rejecting. You cannot allow a reject on a ball screen. And then no. that became their only non-negotiable and they improved their defensive system so much by just emphasizing that one thing. So talk to us, you already referenced, got to turn your feet and that's the yeah. number one thing. But what are some other ways that you have that guard make sure that that ball goes into the ball screen?
1: So you, by turning your feet you, and you can't give them space. I, I try to teach my players in a way to where, okay, you, you play the game, you, you're on offense and you're on defense. When you're on offense, what are people doing that makes you uncomfortable? Do that to them and be consistent with it. You know, So that the, the more efficient you are, good offensive players are waiting for defenses to make mistakes. They know us. So if they know our black is this and they see you've given them space, you just gave her an opportunity. You didn't turn your feet. You gave her an opportunity to do something different from what we wanted to dictate her to do. So that's on you. So guards, non-negotiable, do what you hear. Soon as you hear it, you understand how to turn your feet. Now, once you've turned your feet, she only has one way that she can go. Maybe two, but definitely direction we're sending her or away from the basket either of those two things happen, success for us. If you don't turn your feet, we can't get the scheme. If you allow her to reject, we can't get the scheme. Now she's in her bag. Now you're going to have to have a seat. And we all, another non-negotiable is we're not fouling. We're not fouling. You're going to trust the help that you have there. We're not just going to blatantly reach or, you know, hip check or or extend our arm for no read. Why why are we doing that? You just let her off the hook. I want to see just how good of a decision maker she is. So let's put the onus on her to have to do something outside of her comfort zone and still be successful.
0: If we were to assess it regardless of outcome of the shot, is a is a win a contested mid-range shot from either the yep. big or from the guard?
1: Yep. Most is- definitely. Are there any other wins? Yeah, I want to win the battle in the paint. I don't I don't want teams having paint touches because that's a dangerous area because if guards are getting in your paint, usually the people that have to protect the rim are your bigs. And we know bigs sometimes don't have the best habits when it comes to uh, coming from a help position. Guards that are crafty can get into their body. Now they pick up cheap fouls. Bigs that are lazy will reach and slap Now they pick up cheap fouls. Now, instead of giving up a contested jumper, they got an and one. Or my best big just picked up two cheap fouls. Now she's out the game. These things hurt you bad. So we want to win the points in the paint battle by making them take contested jump shots. We don't want people to get off on the three-point line. So when these on-ball screen actions are happening, we're doing it to be aggressive to run them off the three-point line. Now, once they're off the three-point line, how are we gearing up? Are we just going to let them have play Matador defense and let them just go straight to the rim? Or are we going to uh, bring our drop coverage up to make her have to think and survey? Now, while she's thinking and survey, that means she's not playing. She's not looking to attack. So now that gives us time to get back in front. And now she's taking that contested jumper.
0: Good stuff. And uh, I know one of the common ways to attack a drop coverage from a handler's perspective is snake dribbles. I imagine you're eliminating that a little bit by the the distance of the big from the screen.
1: Correct. The distance of the big and also the guard being on that hip. What can you snake if the guard is on your hip? You know, guard's on your hip, big's up and in the coverage. She may give you an in and out, but you can't go too far because if you cross it over, the guard is right there. If the big is low and wide, she might can get a hand in there and get a hand on something, on a cross. So that only gives you that hard in and out or a hezzy or a bounce back. All of those work to our advantages because that's that that gap in time where you're kind of in the matrix. The offensive player is in the matrix, and now when they're moving slow, the defense can get back in front and get settled. Surveying slows people up that's the matrix for us and we allow our players to be able to get back in and now we're back in real time and we're good.
0: It's a great analogy. And <laughs> uh, I can see how this connects with your philosophy off the ball and you've referenced it a few times but let's dive a little bit deeper cuz off the ball you're all for switching uh basically zoning off the ball. Can you explain that philosophy?
1: Yeah, so let's say for instance um well the ball is on the left-hand side of the court at the 45. There's a um a, a screen happening, and you have um, no corner fill on the strong side, but you have a corner and a wing, wing and a corner fill on the weak side. So when that action is happening, now we're in a situation, or let's put it this way: I'll give an easier one. Let's say there's a um, a pick to picker action happening, where the guard goes and screens across for the big then the other big comes in down screens for the guard so that's the pick the picker right so if you have a um a wing a a corner field and a wing on that weak side then what we have is this the picker whoever's guarding the, the guard that just went across the screen for the big her job isn't to just be concerned with her man her job is to jam the big that's coming across. So that gives my big an opportunity while my guard is standing her man up, the big can avoid the screen and be able to get in between her man and the basket, meet her with a hard three-quarter denial, whether it's from the top side or from the bottom side. While this guard is jamming, you have your two individuals that should be in the gap, in the hole anyway. No one's screening them. So as that guard that just screened is coming up cause her man is still jamming, that guard that is jamming will be late. So the top guard, if that's the top guard, she can sit in that hole and intercept that man as she comes up. Now, whoever was just jamming, you jam the big goes off of you. You can just sit in the hole cause it's the perfect position for help side. You're one or two passes away. So there's no need for her to jam and have to fight through all this traffic when this man is sitting right there on the wing and she's looking and seeing everything develop, she can just X out, pick her up, slide over, we're good. And that can be the same for a big too if you have an agile big that can get out there, lock and guard a guard that may catch that ball at the top of the key. Because the object is if we don't want to give up threes, someone has to lock to be there on the catch so that they can't see the rim, they feel the pressure, and she's going to want to uh, vacate the three-point line.
0: Well, I was going to ask you, and that's, that's kind of the key to it all, is that obviously you're trying to defend the three-point line and still, right. be, still have awareness to the ball because obviously yep, the yep. ball scores. So with that then, are there any adjustments based on scouting reports in terms of personnel or different things that you do relative to that, uh, like a max range shooter, a Caitlin <laughs> Clark type of player? Is that mm-hmm. someone that you're zoning off of or is that someone that you're locking and just not leaving?
1: If we're guarding a Caitlin Clark type player, if she's off ball, then we are locking. We're locking on single um, screens, pin downs. We're locking on stagger actions. And um, no
0: help from that player? Does that player not help at all?
1: Uh, no, no. I mean, if she, I, I, I'll put it this way. I will allow my players to but if you're going to help, then everyone, because everyone's on high alert, you have to communicate what you see and what is going on. So if you're leaving, you need to notify someone that you're leaving so that they know, okay, if Caitlin is coming up, I know I'm the next man that's going to have to get to her because we're not giving this look up. And now because I alerted you, I know that you're alert to what I may need you to help me with. If I see you leave, you should be saying or I got it. So that lets me know I'm no longer going to my man. I'm now going to the man that just helped me. So it's a lot, but when you drill it every day and you're constantly having conversations about it, you see success from it, you show your girls or your players on film the success from it, they get excited about it. They're gonna want to repeat it.
0: It's a lot, but it's concepts, right, coach? It's 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 conceptual. So it, it actually empowers player with, players with the information to do what they think is best in the situation, right?
1: That's it. The same way we rep jump shots, you can rep defense too. It's just that defense isn't as glorified as it should be. But I get my players excited about the things that I used to get excited about as a player. You know, Michael Cooper, he, he had me guarding Sue Bird, Diana Taurasi, Cappy Poindexter, Simone Augustus, Maya Moore. Yolanda Griffith, Natalie Wood. I guarded the one through five. So, (laughs) as frustrating as it was, that's a
0: crazy list. That's.
1: (laughs) i like, how did I not ever get Defensive Player of the Year when I'm doing? (laughs) But you know, Cheryl Swoops, Tina Thompson, all of them. But the the thing about it is this: I would get excited about number one. I didn't want nobody to embarrass me. Number two whatever their average was, I wanted to try to hold them to half of that. So that means I needed to know my stuff. So I got excited over that. I was juiced up over um, taking pride in locking this person up or making making them have a long, frustrating night. You may hit a couple in my face, Diana, but you're going to work for every single one of them. So I got excited about that. I paint that picture for my players. And the first thing they're asking me in a timeline is, how many she got? <laughs> like, what's the goal? Or at halftime, "Y'all, we got her down to six points. Her average is 20. She can't get no more. You know, they're excited about it. And I love to see them be excited about it because they've taken ownership and they have pride in what we're doing.
0: It's a great way to give them really small milestones to be able to focus on defensively, isn't it? Yes, and- Look, the other part of this is obviously you're just 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 building an excitement and an ownership in your defense, aren't you?
1: Hmm. Most definitely, because defense. Everybody loves to put offense on a pedestal, but when you when you want to win a championship, yeah, you need to hit shots, but you also need to get stops. And if you can be strategic about it, especially if a team is very systematic in their system, and you can understand how to break the pattern. They don't know what to do. That's almost like stepping on an ant bed. It's all chaos when, some, when when a foot comes in there. But when there's no chaos, the system is flawless. So I try to get my players to understand patterns and tendencies. How do you break it? How do you stymie them? Now we got it.
0: So the other advantage, I imagine, of this weak side defensive philosophy is that to play against a player, we already referenced, Caden Clark, let's go Aaliyah Boston, like a dominant mm-hmm. big inside. That you're mm-hmm. loaded to be able to always be there and help, right?
1: Yeah. So when you have a dominant big on the inside, you got to understand how they're trying to work. Are they a big that wants to bury you deep in the paint? Or are they a big that's a little bit more finesse and they like to post up outside the paint? Well, we have coverages for both. So if it's a Leah Boston, she wants that deep seal on the inside. She's just a hog in the paint. She's going to outwork you. She's going. She's going, it's going to be dirty. I like to use the terminology. It's going to be a lot of meat slapping. You're going to hear a lot of this all night long in the paint. I said, you're going to have to be able to play karate while you're in there. Uh, Cause it's going to be a fight for your life. So when you have a player that loves to bring physicality and she's relentless with it, you have to have a mindset to work, to outwork her. If anyone's going to win position, it's got to be you. If she has you deep, we should be pulling and swimming to keep her off balance. If she has you high, we should be spinning off and getting behind and giving kidney shots all night long. Um, anything that's legal, we want to do it. We always want to apply pressure, lean on it. Everyone practices in the paint, sometimes without um, defenses on them. So everybody's comfortable with doing their moves and holding the seals because no one's. On them, But I teach my players to lean on people because now you're leaning on them for the first three quarters. In the fourth quarter, they're a little bit more tired than they wouldn't be because you were applying just as much effort as they were. You wanted them to not have the ball just as much as they want to have the ball. Win that battle. Now it becomes psychological. Now fatigue sets in in a different way. Now you've won and you're going to win when it matters the most. If she happens to catch it, that's okay. Your job isn't done because now you play low and get behind and now you don't let her get into your body. Use your forearm. You see her going into her move. We've shown you the move a thousand times so you know what's coming. She's going to reverse pivot and face up. Boom, you're right there in her space. Now she's looking to attack, drop, hands low and wide. If she's a finesse type player that wants to get outside the paint, Keep her outside the paint. Now, on the catch, make her be a step or two further than where she's comfortable. Now, when she's getting into her move, she's in the area of the guards. If the ball goes in, everyone should be jumping to the ball anyway. Now that big wants to put the ball on the floor, boom, we're there to get a hand in the way, get deflections, pop it up, uh, make her fumble it, deflection, still we score.
0: Love it. Thanks for giving us both those solutions. And uh, I want to highlight something you said, which is which I laughed when you said it, is players are used to doing one on one post moves. And that yep. is absolutely true. And I never understood that because again, I mean, everything's a decision in basketball, so I don't believe you should do much on air. But the limited value of one-on-oh is again, you're taking advantage of that because they're not used to having a defender play physical. It makes no sense, does it? <laughs>
1: None whatsoever. So if you're going to come and play for Coach Delicia, I don't care if you're a guard. I don't care if you're big. You're going to get touched up on the daily. Sometimes yeah. we with, with noodles, with pool noodles, or sometimes I need for them to feel bone and muscle um, because you have to understand that this has to become so second nature for you that it doesn't fathom you or at um, it doesn't bother you at all when you're in live play. So you got to touch them up.
0: Coach, you've had so much experience overseas as a player and as a coach, obviously coaching with the uh, USA Basketball. You have a ton of gold medals to show for it as well. So I'm curious, just your perspective on international basketball and some of the things that you brought back from it that have helped you become a better coach.
1: Yeah. So one of the, the main things that was an eye opener for me early on when I went to Europe to play was Uh, system and utilizing everyone and utilizing ball movement and body movement and I realized then how difficult it was to defend teams when bodies move just as much as the ball because now everyone's an option but in America it was more one-on-one so the ball would stop and the ball would stop with a certain player in a certain spot on the floor so that they can get to their areas while everyone is just standing and watching. That's not a good way to play the game. And it's not fun because it's only beneficial for one person. And that's a lot of pressure to put on one person to have to carry your offense like that. But in Europe, they use everyone. Everyone is involved. And you see so many different types of screens, flare screens, back picks, all in the same play cross pick, back pick, stagger away, uh <laughs> flipping flipping the screen. Uh so that excited me and I think that just opened my mind up to the game and how it is played versus how it should be played. Now when you add the the systemic approach from Europe, they may not be as athletic and explosive as we are in America, but if you can add that systemic approach to all this pure unfiltered athleticism you're in for a treat they play they play fast and it's smooth and it's fluent we play fast but one-on-one and aggressive but if you can combine both worlds and your team can play with that level of fluidity with that level of athleticism inside of the system you can have a lot of fun
0: so, so are you incorporating that at Old Dominion in terms of using some masking actions to be able to get your players in matchup advantages?
1: Defenses hate movement. So we try to put in sets that have a lot of movement and variation, some that look similar to others, but there's a wrinkle here that'll throw you off guard. Uh, we love flare screen actions because people usually fall asleep. Soon as their man passes, everyone relaxes and stands up. Boom, here comes a flash screen. Now they're in a scramble mode. Big has to help. Big slip, lay up to the rim. Or guard sets the screen. Big uh, Guard gets hit. Big doesn't help because we just slipped on them. Now here comes the three. So adding those elements into it keeps the defense on their toes, but it allows us to play with a rhythm. Every team should have a rhythm transition shouldn't be the only time that you play fast. You can still play fast in the half court, but you have to do it with control. And if you want to play fast in the half court, everyone has to be on the same page. They got to get to their points when they're supposed to be there so the rhythm isn't broken.
0: Were there things as a player that you thought were useless or fluff that a coach did that you you now would say, I agree. They still are fluff and bad. <laughs> and I didn't like doing them as a player. So I'm not doing them as a coach. Um, Like 5-0 on oh inbound or something like that, where it's like, as a player, it's like, I get it. We got to do it. But, you know, it's not that yeah. exciting.
1: <laughs> well, I guess it would depend on what level you're on. You know, when you're on the grassroots level, when you're in middle school and high school, you need their you need to do some level of five on 0, um because you have to. It depends on what point in the season you're at. Has there been a lot of wear and tear? Okay, so instead of using the physicality of things, let's broaden their imagination, let's enhance that. So five on 0 is good for grassroots level. Now, when you get to the big stage, when you're on the D one level or as a pro, yeah, those things can kind of become monotonous. and you're like, man, let's 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 get to the let's get to the hooping, let's get to the playing. Uh, Let's get to the scout so I can get to my skill development and then I can get out the gym. So I think all of it was necessary. And I feel like every player, regardless of what level you're on, if if the stuff is being implemented, let's trust and hope that the coach is a good coach and they're putting you through things that are relevant for your growth in that moment so that you can be better. I embraced everything. I was never that player that was like, "Man, this is dumb, this is stupid." If it was three man weave and we did it for ten minutes straight, I was trying to perfect every pass. I was trying to hit every point. I was trying to uh, keep the keep the rhythm of what we were doing and make it look perfect. That was that was me. <laughs> but I've had teammates that are like, "This is for the birds. Yeah. Can we move? On? This is boring." But they probably didn't have the career that I had.
0: Well, I should have worn my no three-man weave shirt, though, because uh, you know we can have a whole discussion about that. Because, again, it just doesn't connect any information for players to the game. But I get it. It's part of routines for some people. But, uh, c- Coach, I mean, what, what stands out from talking to you is obviously the connection between your career and coaching and how they've kind of intersected and helped you obviously become a better coach. It, it just seems like you do a really good job at keeping up and staying ahead of kind of the changing times and uh, not being stuck in who you were as a player and this is how the game should be played?
1: Yeah, uh, one thing that is important for me is never to be one of those coaches that I have my system and and I and it's, just, it's about recruiting players to plug them in. We're in a different day and age with basketball. With the transfer portal, I've had three teams in the past three, three new teams in the past three years that I've been here at Old Dominion. So you have to adjust. I don't, I don't care what my system is. If I go get a new job tomorrow, those players may not fit that system. So what am I gonna do? Am I gonna make this a frustrating situation where I'm forcing what I want, even though their skill sets may not fit it? Or do you adjust? You have to have an open mind as a coach and continue to grow and not get so set in your ways because then you get stagnant and you become old quick. Because these, there are trends within this game. There are some classics that will always remain in terms of, of uh, how to play and non-negotiables that go across the board. But talent is getting better. Players that are younger are watching pros sooner and they're picking up on things. So they're more athletic. They train better. They're stronger faster. So you have to adjust to this. I'm the type of coach I look at my team every single year and I say, okay, what do I have? Well, I know these are the things we ran. I like some, there's some staples within that, but I have to build this according to what's in front of me. And that's what I do. I build based off of what's in front of me. It's a lot of work. It's frustrating (laughs) because I have to develop something new every single year, but it keeps me fresh and I'm always researching, um, digging through my old notes because I took a lot of notes as a player. Uh, recalling based off of things that I, I learned from all my coaches that I've been coached by and just implementing it in a way to where it fits us and our needs.
0: Did you take those notes with a vision of being a coach or was it to help you as a player at the time?
1: I was always that type of person. I love writing. I love journaling. I love, uh, you, you know, if a play made me happy or if I, I was the type of player where we put a new play in I would go home and draw it anyway for my own learning. Then I would say, ooh, if, because I love defense, I would say, ooh, man, if she did this, then that would be hard. I don't know what we would do on the backside if they did this action. So maybe, you know, people told me I was a coach, but I never believed them, you know, back then. I I didn't see that in myself, but I guess I was becoming what I am today.
0: Yeah. Great note-taking is a superpower. It is absolutely. And, you know, you see it less and less, even at coaching clinics, it's amazing how you see coaches sit there and not take any notes. And, uh, you know, you might take them differently on your phone, on your tablet or something, but those notes are so powerful, aren't they?
1: I tell my, my players all the time, there's something powerful about pen or pencil to paper. I'm a, I'm a spiritual, religious person. And the Bible speaks of that a thousand trillion times about writing stuff down whether it's your goals or or your visions or your dreams or whatever write them down so i i think that's something that i just carried with me and i just write i have a a million of these things all shapes and sizes and colors everywhere everywhere in the car in my purse and by my bed under my pillow i I have them everywhere because i love just writing stuff down
0: for coaches that aren't watching the visuals, she's holding up a whole bunch of different notebooks that are right by her. And I love that. That's absolutely how I did it too, coach. It's just, and I still do it that way. It's so much fun. You know, I always turn the channel anytime I hear any type of generational debate about, oh, this generation's better than this generation. And I can hear it in your philosophy that it's not about better, it's about different right? Generations yeah. are just different because as you Correct. referred to, players have different access to different things that you didn't have access to as
1: a young Correct. player. Correct. And and history does repeat itself, but it can repeat itself in good ways in basketball. If you look, I used to look at Hakeem Olajuwon. Anytime they were on TV, I would be, I was just, I was just in love with that man, not not in that way, but his game and how he, the game was just so beautiful. He did things with his feet without having to dribble the ball that guards were doing with dribbles. How do you cross somebody up? How do you make somebody fall as a post player? Well, that means you got to have, you know, you got to have some stuff in your bag, your little shimmy with your shoulders. You're using all these different fakes and how to drop your hips and show the ball this way to get the defense to bite. I mean, I watched him. So because I watched him through osmosis or whatever, it it was in me. And that made me better. So now in my day and age, I use the history of him to enhance me in the present. And that's what a lot of players are doing. And that's why the game is so beautiful now. And I love to see the advancements that have taken place. When you look at the ratings of What's happening uh, with with, uh, our U.S. soccer team uh, when you look at the WNBA or the NCAA tournament to see how people are in love with what we're doing, that's where the history of the game can repeat itself and make itself relevant for today, and you have these tremendous players.
0: That was beautifully said, Coach. And uh, you know, give us an idea about you as a coach and particularly in relevance to the old Dominion basketball program.
1: Well, me as a coach, I'm, I'm someone that prides myself on, on trying to be better every day. And the same standards that I have for my players, I have for myself. But at the same time, even though I'm Delisha Milton Jones that have done all these wonderful things in basketball, I'm also a human being. And I want my players to see me as that, too, because I see them as that. I always try to engage in the person before I even try to coach the player. So you're going to get a coach that is going to care for you deeply. A lot say that, but I am here in the thick with you. I'm going to roll my sleeves up and be there for my players, whether they need a ride to the doctor or they need someone to talk to at 2 a.m. in the morning. Uh, they need me to be their favorite aunt, their BFF. Whatever hat I need to wear, as Whitney Houston eloquently put it, I'm every woman. I will be that uh, for you. I am your home away from home. I'm a intense, fierce competitor. And because of the relationships that we have, you'll be able to understand where I'm coming from regardless of the moment. But uh, we're going to have fun. We're going to win and we're going to have fun while we do it. And there's different ways to go about it. But I love for us to have a good time while we're doing it. Just
0: awesome, Coach. Thank you so much for uh, keeping it real with us and adding (laughs) great value to us as coaches. It's just awesome to be able to hear you talk about basketball.
1: Oh, thank you. Uh, My way isn't the only way, but it works for me. Um, But I I hope that is something that I've said that can uh, impart some wisdom and enhance someone that's listening.
0: Get the best instructional coaching with ImmersionVideos.com. Are you looking to become a better coach? Then ImmersionVideos.com is the perfect solution for you. Their downloadable videos provide expert coaching from all over the world to help you develop the skills needed to take your coaching to the next level. Get all access practice and clinic footage from some of the best coaches in basketball, including Nate Oates, Tobin Anderson, Doug Novak, Mark Casio, Dave Smart, Francisco Nanny, and more.